You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, with your word open before us, we ask now that you would speak to us, that we would understand your gospel in clear and in straightforward ways. Help us, Lord, we ask, in the name of the Father, through the care of the Son, and to the comfort of the Spirit. Amen. Jesus reaches the turning point in the gospel in this particular narrative sequence. We are in a series of Lent, 40 days plus seven Sundays, seven resurrection Sundays and 40 days in which the church characteristically thinks long and deep about what it is to follow Jesus Christ, what it means to follow him to the cross and to follow him in the hope of the resurrection. These are serious days, aren't they? In our news, in the world, it's concentrating our thinking. It's causing us to reflect deeply on what we are dependent upon and in whom we have our salvation. So it's as if the the whole world is conspiring with a Lenten feel to it this year, where we are thinking about what it is for us to be followers of Jesus Christ. This is a high point, the transfiguration, where Jesus before three disciples is transfigured with heavenly glory. The first line of this Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. If you count backwards six days, you come to the very important point in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And their response to that was to compliment. The the popular opinion about Jesus was positive. Some say you are Elijah. Others, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And Jesus then stopped and said, well, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who spoke. Oftentimes, Peter's speaking as kind of the representative disciple, the outspoken, precocious disciple. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You couldn't get a clear confession. And Jesus responded to Peter's confession. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Jesus then proceeded to talk about the fact that he was headed to Jerusalem and he would suffer many things at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then Peter spoke again. And this time he speaks, I think, in defense of Jesus, not in rebuke of Jesus, but in defense of him. Lord, this will never happen to you. And I find it striking sometimes the distinction in our own lives between confession and commitment. We get the confession right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
But we struggle with the implications of the commitment aspect of that. Jesus responds to Peter, never, Lord, this is never going to happen to you, with a strong rebuke, get behind me, Satan. There's no question where Jesus is interpreting Peter's uh, well-meaning, maybe well-intentioned, honorific statement to Jesus. Jesus responds to that as a dangerous thought. You're not thinking the thoughts of God. You're thinking the thoughts of man. And true enough, Peter at this point has no idea of how Abel's sacrifice ties into Jesus' cross. No idea that Abraham standing on Mount Moriah with knife in hand before Isaac is a picture of what is going to happen to the father's son on Calvary. No idea of how the Passover lamb celebrated by the Israelites on the night that they exited Egypt has a redemptive symbol of what is going to be finally, climatically fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. No idea that Isaiah's description of the suffering servant is a picture of Christ. That's not in Peter's mind. That hasn't come together yet. All of these uh, symbols and pointers and object lessons of redemption that have been moving toward an understanding of the cross have yet escaped Peter. He doesn't comprehend that. He gets the confession, but he doesn't know the cost that God will pay in order to fulfill our redemption, to provide for this this Eucharistic table in the presence of our enemies. He hasn't gotten that yet. Jesus goes on to say, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That was six days ago. Now on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, they go up to a high mountain. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon, which rises 9,000 feet high. It's most likely, although not identified as that mount, Mount Hermon, it's probably the mount in which uh, the disciples have gone with Jesus. It's interesting, they've spent six days together, mainly hiking out in the open. There wasn't much there besides Caesarea Philippi in the mountain. And they come up to this high mountain for the purpose of prayer. And there he was transfigured before them. Really, why isn't there more in the narrative, more in the process, more in the emotion? This is stark. It's austere in its description. There was, there he was transfigured before them, metamorphosized. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Do you realize that when Jesus was born, And the power and the brilliance and the light of the angelic host. But none of that was reflected in Jesus. Jesus was an ordinary baby. When Jesus rose from the dead, and again, you have the uh, angelic figures that are brilliant, illuminating. But Jesus is mistaken as the gardener. 
This is the only time where it seems that what was within is manifest without of the glory of God. It is both a testimony to Jesus, the Father revealing himself in this way, in his humanity, as well as a testimony to Peter, James, and John. You've got to ask, what? Is there an inner circle of privilege in the group of disciples with Peter, James, and John? Because uh, they are there at uh, Jairus' daughter's uh, healing, and they will be with Jesus in Gethsemane. What is it about... Um, their presence. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about the inner circle uh, of inner circle of privilege, the inner circle of the elite. This is not an inner circle of privilege. The closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to his cross, the closer you get to the meaning of what it is to be committed to Jesus Christ. It's an inner circle, I think, of responsibility. It's an inner circle of sacrifice. It's an inner circle of service. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to understand about what it means to really follow him. So the question is, do you want your confession tested with the reality of what commitment means? Do you want to get close to Jesus? Do you want to understand better? Do we want to understand better? what it is to really be committed to him. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And just then, appearing with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Suddenly it's like, All the law and the prophets show up as if to be in the presence of Jesus who is fulfilling the law and fulfilling the prophets. And Peter, again, and I think Peter's really trying hard to say the right thing here because he blew it before and he got a severe rebuke from Jesus. Now I think he's, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I remember hearing a sermon that was just on that phrase, Lord, it's good for us to be here. But I do think that if my sermon was based on that phrase, I think we'd miss the point. Yeah, it's good that you're here. And Peter adds, if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Oh, Peter, he really means well. He is so well-intentioned. He's the activist in the group who wants to do something. He wants to respond by uh, setting in motion something that honors the Lord, honors Moses, honors Elijah. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Sometimes uh, as Christians, we go through a phase of this kind of well-meaning, well-intentioned activism. And we're like Peter. We so much want to honor the Lord. But how do you honor the Lord? I guess you'd honor the Lord not by your imagination, not by your wish dreams of what you'd like to do for the Lord. 
But you honor the Lord, as we will see in a moment, uh, in a very different way. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's not enough to be carried away by the glory of the transfiguration. I do think it's important for us as believers today to understand what mitigates against the testimony of the transfiguration. What mitigates against the testimony of the uh, transformation, the transfiguration, is our false views of transcendence. Trying to kind of create a sense of transcendence in our own lives, an attempt to create a sense of significance, of value, of meaning. A few years back, two leading philosophers, U.S. philosophers, Richard Dreyfus and Sean Kelly. Sean Kelly was the chair of the philosophy department at Harvard when he wrote this book. Uh, wrote a book entitled uh, All Things Shining. And they said in this book that uh, there really is probably no universal truth. There probably is really no transcendent reality. So they suggested in order to keep at bay the nihilistic, despairing, depressing thoughts because there is no transcendence, to sort of create and to go back to Homer and and the uh, Greek gods and develop an understanding of their moods. Their gods kind of uh, were... Uh, expressions of their hopes and their dreams and their thoughts, and they focused on that kind of feeling of transcendence. Well, Kelly and Dreyfus, they argue that since there is no transcendence, we need to kind of rediscover it. You might discover it in a sporting event where you sense that sense of ethos, that, that, uh, that wish that something of the powerful moment impresses you. Or it may be uh, a sexual experience, they say. Or it may be the Thanksgiving family meal. That that's where you experience transcendence. I say all of that just to put it in contrast with the reality of a God who has spoken a God who has made himself real in the incarnation, the reality of the word being made flesh and dwelling among us, and we behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I say that so that we do distinguish between our false attempts to create transcendence in so many different ways and the real transcendence that we desperately need. We need to be in the presence of the one who really does manifest the glory of God. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
And the response of the disciples is to fall face down as if dead. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar, speaks of this as a sacramental touch. That in the midst of this glory, and in the midst of uh, what do you do with this glory, and the Father saying to Peter, to the disciples, listen to him. Throughout this Lenten period, it is an opportunity that we share together the responsibility, the desire, the privilege, the joy of listening to Jesus, understanding his word, praying his psalms, coming to grips with who he is, understanding that in relationship to our families, to our jobs, to the relationships that are easy, the relationships that are hard, and asking ourselves, what does it mean for us to listen to Jesus? In the midst of this, we need the touch of Jesus. If we're confronted with the real truth of his transcendence, we need to be told, get up, don't be afraid. The father said, listen to him. The father didn't say, listen to me. Because what the Son expressed was everything that the Father was and is and stands for. The Father didn't say, listen to them in terms of Moses and Elijah, because everything that Moses and Elijah stood for and said was now fulfilled in the Son. The Father didn't say, listen to, uh, to the disciples, because everything that the disciples will say about the Son is only because it is the word of Christ. So we have a challenge before us to listen to Jesus. Uh, I have three adult children, all married, and, uh, uh, and I have learned something about relating to in-laws. Uh, through Jeremiah's eyes, I see Kristen, his wife. Through Andrew's eyes, I see Janini, his wife. And through uh, Kennerly's eyes, I see Patrick. I've learned to try to understand my, uh, my children's spouses through the eyes, through their eyes. And I want to see Jesus through the Father's eyes. In all of his glory, in all of his truth. And at the transfiguration, we get something of a glimpse of that. I've seen the Son through the eyes of the Father in preparation for the cross. I want to see Jesus through the fullness of the revelation that has been given about him. And I want to follow Jesus. And I need his sacramental touch, which is about what we're going to receive when we take the cup and we take the bread. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 